All right. Good morning to all of you out there on internet land, uh, quarantined in your homes, and welcome back to our study of Revelation. We're a couple sessions into it now. Uh, in fact, this being the third, we spent those first two sessions largely trying to gain the proper frame uh, for for entering into Revelation. You know, considering it as, in terms of genre. Um, and then, and then trying to get rid of some of the, the misnomers and misperceptions that have been attached to this book over the, over the course of the centuries. So we've, we're going to continue to point out some of those themes as we go along. And of course, to bring ourselves up to speed, I do indeed want to take my time during this first chapter because as the first chapter, it's quite foundational. And there's a tendency also, I think, to speed into the letters and the churches. If we get there today, if we get into Ephesus, great. Um, if not, uh, that's not going to break my heart either. Last week, we recalled that in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, because these things are, are worth reinforcing in our minds, it's not revelations, it's revelation. It's not the revelation of John the seer, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about that, that genitive, that possessive, you know, uh, of Jesus Christ in, in both its subjective and objective ways of, of looking at it. Both are true. Christ is the one who is the revelator, the one doing the revealing. And Christ is also the content of that revelation. As we noted in the preliminary studies we looked at, this book has, has it certainly has God in the center, but to say that is almost misleading because it is so much Christ at the center. And we see a, a, very, a very profound and rich theology of Christ uh, being the one who reveals the Father. We'll see that in many and various ways. So this revelation, as we have seen, is passed from God the Father through Jesus Christ, down through his angel, down to John, and to John, to the fellow slaves, to the churches. I mean, ultimately, you're going to say to the seven churches, and then from those seven churches beyond. As, these are, as this is viewed, the revelation is viewed as a whole letter with seven different introductions and a cyclical letter that then is to be received by the, the entirety of the church, both in the first century and then continuing forward. We'll look today, no doubt about it, to see that John is quite aware that, that what he has seen, that what he is writing, that this is going to be part of Scripture. He considers it Scripture, and we'll see how we can be so certain about that. Now, this message is passed along, and then that chain, as it were, from God to Christ to the angel to John, John to the churches, thus it also comes to us. And so we have that first of seven beatitudes in Revelation, and that beatitude arrives in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So uh, this, this puts us, I mean, this is the one who reads it publicly is going to be the pastor, and the one who receives it are going, and hears it and keeps it are going to be the Christians. Let me, let me check one word here off the, off the top of my head here. 
Yeah, blessed. Yeah, teruntes is the Greek. It's the same word tereo, which is going to, is in many respects at the heart of my sermon for today. In, in John's gospel, we have that language of, um, remember Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And sometimes we get a caricature in our minds of, if you love, if you love me, you will keep the Ten Commandments and do it perfectly. You will be perfectly obedient to the Ten Commandments. And then, I mean, the problem with that is then you go, well, I must not love Jesus. But then the problem in answering it is like, like, okay, well, I haven't done these things, so I must not love Jesus, so I must not be a Christian. Or I have done these things, but whoever says he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So no matter how you answer that, you're wrong. And that's one of the, the key points you can come to, to where you're like, okay, I'm not understanding this verse the way Jesus means it clearly. If I can't possibly fathom a way in which to understand it that doesn't contradict something fundamental to uh, the faith that Christ has given us. So what, what you do is if you just look at those, of course, if you look at the context, but if you look at the words themselves in that section, they're very helpful to uh, keep his commandments or obey his commandments. Is, the verb there is tereo, comes from tereo, I keep. And of course it can have the, the, the sense of uh, obey, the sense of observe, but even more so probably to the heart of it is the sense of treasure. Because if you, if you treasure it, you're going to keep it, you're going to observe it. If you treasure it, you're going to guard it, you're going to protect it. Um, if, you, if you treasure it, you're going to hold it sacred. And that's at, the, that's at the essence. Okay, so what is it that we're supposed to guard, treasure, hold sacred, conform ourselves to? It's this whole nexus of thoughts. And there, Jesus, the word for commandments is entolos, uh, the plural of entole. And, and that... That's simply, it can be understood as commandments, but it probably translates better into English as something like teachings or instructions. I mean, we might even say catechesis. By the way, this same language shows up um, repeatedly with Jesus, but uh, in Matthew 28, where you have um, the resurrected Christ at the very end saying to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to keep everything that I have commanded. It's, those, it's basically those same two words. I have to ch- double-check it on entolos. But it's basically, I know it's, those, I know it's tereo. So again, it's not like Jesus is laying down the Ten Commandments as you must do this in order to be a Christian. Um, it's all of his instructions. Now, certainly we could say that the Ten Commandments, that the natural law, the essence of the law is included in that. We're not excluding it. But it's more, uh, it's more inclusive. It's more broad. It's, it's, in effect, everything. So you can, I mean, what's also fascinating by comparing that to the section in John is in Matthew's Gospel. I've got to find it here. Sorry, having a hard time this morning. But in Matthew's Gospel, You see this language connected so closely to baptism. And in John's gospel, you see this language so closely connected to the giving of the Spirit, which of course are one and the same thing. To be baptized is to be baptized in water and the Spirit. To be baptized is to receive the Holy Spirit. And thus, from that then flows this new creation, this new heart that then desires, wills 
to tereo the entolos, to guard and keep the whole teaching of Christ, the whole deposit that he has come, come to give. So let me just double check this. I'm in Matthew now. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Didascontus, teaching them to reign. Uh, it's, a little, it's a little different here, I think. Osa ente lamein. Behold, I am with you always. Humen. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the days. Yeah, interesting. So it's a little bit different construction there. But it's the same idea of te, of te reo. So you have this connection, you know, again, in their own unique ways between Matthew connecting baptism in the, in the Trinitarian name, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that name singular, and then keeping and treasuring everything that Christ has taught. And you have, you have John doing the same thing that, um, because there's, there's an inclusio in that little section in his answer to Philip where he, he talks about um, uh, keeping his commandments, te reoing his antolas, and then he talks about the giving of the Spirit, and then it's back to the fullness of keeping his commandments. Because in loving his teaching, you're loving him. In loving him, you're loving God. In loving God, God is loving you. And there's this whole like cyclical thing that goes on. Of course, if you want a starting point of all this, you'd go to John's epistle where, where he says, we love because God first loved us. So there's the starting point, no doubt about it. So it's a monergistic God action starting point. He is love and we love because he first loved us. But then from that point on, it's cyclical. We, and we become participants in the, in the love of the Trinity and the love of God himself and, and that sort of love that even exists between the persons of the Trinity. This is like, this is the majesty of our calling. I, I, I talked about that last week a little, where we are going to, we are those who are born from the dead, and the majesty of that calling. This is another aspect of, that, of the majesty of what we shall be, that we are participants in the ongoing, cyclical, if you will, uh, love of God in Christ Jesus, the converse of the Holy Trinity, that is a converse, a, a, an eternal converse of love. Okay, well, I've clearly gotten a little off track here, but um, <laughs> that's the way it goes. So, so, yeah, blessed are, back in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep, te reo, what is written in it for the time is near. So to guard this and to treasure this, um, that, is a, that comes with a divine blessing. As I said, this puts us in the context of church service. This puts us in the context of the liturgy. And that can shape and give yet one more layer to the reading of Revelation. What we're going to see with Revelation is, is what makes it so fascinating. Maybe, maybe in a sense so difficult for the 20th or 21st century mind to really grasp hold of or like is we like, we, like the, we like the overly sim, simplistic axioms like sensus literalis unus est, the, the one sense, the, you know, the, the, the primary, there's only one primary sense, okay? But the problem with Revelation is Revelation takes an image, and the image already is in the Old Testament. I, by the way, this, this is not me off on another tangent. This is me preparing us for where we're going today. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, 
the, the la there's, there's layers there. The image already has layers that, that have been laid in the Old Testament scriptures so that when there's this image, it already has a, th a three-dimensionality, a multiple-dimensionality. And then John, as is his way, will, will lay layer upon layer upon layer on top of that image. So, the, so, so kind of the, the Western 21st century mind goes, well, what is it? What does it mean? To which Revelation just says, yes. <laughs> right? Like, all of it. Like, pick one. It means that, and it means the other, and it means the other. They are all stacked up together into, into one uh, totally loaded image. Okay, so, so again, when we are tereoing, when we are guarding, keeping, observing, treasuring re this revelation, um, it's precisely in the going over it and over it and over it again and visualizing it that we gain more and more blessing from it. Okay, then we have the traditional greeting modified uh, from the Jewish greeting where it is always, the Jewish greeting is always given on the basis of God, grace to you and peace from God, uh, and, and um, particularly Christian then to include both the Son and the Holy Spirit. We already see the unique flavor for how John does this, and he's kind of like, I mean, this is, this is divine revelation, so... John is a conformist in that respect, but he's a nonconformist in the sense that he's not going to like take that revelation and force it into the cookie cutter mold of, uh, of what might comparatively be found in the New Testament. So for example, we see not only the Father described as the one who is, who was, and who is perpetually coming, but then we see the Spirit come next, and the Spirit is simply described as the seven spirits. You remember this? The seven spirits who are before His throne, and, and the one who is, who is coming, and, and, or who is, who was, and is, who is perpetually coming, He is seated upon the throne. So you have these, these novel, I mean, not novel in the sense that they're unheard of. I mean, you, you know in, in the biblical context like where these things come from, but it's nonetheless a, a nuanced and somewhat surprising uh, revelation. For example, we talked about the one who is, ego I me ho on, from uh, the Septuagint, Exodus 3.14. Here that's modified, not only Ha'on, but not only the one who is, but the one who was and the one who is ever coming. And then the seven spirits, I mean, you kind of have, have this, the spirit of blah and the spirit of blah and the spirit of blah in Isaiah, but you never have like exactly this seven spirits before his throne. And, and John hasn't even got us to where he's going with that. And then from Jesus Christ, so this greeting comes from um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and even the order is a little strange, Father, Spirit, and Son, and you sort of see this numerical connection as you're picturing this. You've got, you've got the, the Son, um, or excuse me, the Father as being this threefold, um, who is, who was, who is coming, and then you've got the Spirit obviously being seven spirits, sevenfold, and then you've got the Son as we saw being fourfold. So verse 5, Jesus Christ and remember, um, the, in the ESV, it's the faithful witness. And if you look at the Greek, it's probably, probably a little better. I mean, you can do that, and not much is lost. 
except um, the obviousness of the, of the numbering here. So you, what you have is four titles given to Christ, and then you've got this beautiful numbering of this three and seven and four, and so from the Father and the Son, from the three and the four precedes the seven, and just kinds of, these kinds of beautiful thoughts you can have uh, when you meditate on this, on this text. But again, the, like the, clear, the clearest way to do this probably in the Greek is Christ is first and foremost the witness, ha martus, and then the faithful one, ha pistis, and then he is the, um, the prototokos, the firstborn of the dead, and then he is the uh, archon, uh, that is the king, the ruler of kings on the earth. And there you can see the English tried to do something with that where it's the ruler instead of the king, um, Basa, Basileus or whatever that would be. Um, it's the archon. So um, that archon, of course, as you heard me say last week, ought to, ought to instruct us in our meaning. So um, what you see here in Jesus, and I want to make sure that I make this clear, I'm not completely convinced that I did that well. You know, in Jesus, we are used to thinking about Jesus, I think as, as Lutherans, at least in this period in time, we're used to thinking about Jesus in his divine nature as true God, and thus, like the revelation of Jesus Christ is the revelation of who God is. I think we have that down pretty well. And that on the cross, we see, like, the purest revelation, like, like as Jesus' heart is opened with the spear, the heart of God is, is open to us, and we see who God is, the self-sacrifice, the humility, the, just the awe-inspiring love of a creator who's willing to die for creatures who are killing him. They hate him so badly, and yet he's going to use this profound evil for our greatest good. So, I, so this, is our, this is probably our our spot at which we're, we're quite rich and, and we know what we're doing. What I think we don't really grasp is, is that, that Jesus is not only true God, but also true man. And by true man, I mean, I'll confess sort of my own poverty of understanding. It's like, by true man, the first thing that pops into your head is this idea of like, okay, well, that means he's really like us. But that's, that's not what true man is, especially not when you have, God, when you have Jesus described as um, true God and true man. Right? Uh, what we're, by true God, we're saying true reflection of who God is. We're not only saying that he is God. I mean, that's true. But that's true, that's true by other means. In saying he's true God, we're also saying he is the true representative of God. He is, biblically put, the express image of the invisible God. He's the, the radiance and glory of God. Um, to see Jesus is to see God, to see the Father. Okay. When we're saying he's true God, we're not only talking about his essence, we're talking in a sense about his function. Now, the same thing there goes for man. Of course, we're confessing his essence, that he's born of the Virgin Mary, okay, and that he's truly flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. But we're confessing more than his essence. We're also confessing his function, that in being true man, we are also saying he is the true representative of man. And here we don't mean sinful man as such. 
Here, in fact, we mean the one true man as God intended man to be. God or Jesus is the express image or icon of the invisible God. And do you remember, do you remember what is said in, in Genesis? Let us make man in our image. And then here comes Christ, who is the image of God. And he is the image of God in, as man. I mean, otherwise it would just be God. To be the image of God instead of just God. In that sense, he is true man, the true image bearer. Okay, now that opens up a whole paradigm, a whole paradigm and way of thinking. And by the way, if you, if you really get into this, like, you know, I'm just kind of starting to do this as the lectionary has driven me into it. Um, but John's, John's gospel is all about this, by the way. So, so <laughs> remember we've talked about John's gospel and Revelation really being part one and part two. John's gospel is very much about how Christ is true God, but also true man. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, the Father is glorified and the Son is glorified. God is glorified and man is glorified. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the essence of what it means to be a human being. Adam fails in the essence of what it means to be a human being precisely because in the moment of testing, in the moment of temptation, Adam does what? Gives in. In the moment of testing, in the moment of temptation, again at a tree, Adam was at a tree and Jesus is at a tree, and the testing is a hell of a lot more intense than what Adam went through, infinitely more intense than what Adam went through, and there is the new Adam at a tree, and instead of rejecting God and rebelling, he submits himself to God and obeys. This is, this is at the heart of that language of, he learned obedience. I mean, the sense in which is, you know, of course, in his self, he's truly obedient, but in order to be the man, ha anthropos, he has to endure this injustice in faithfulness to God. He has to even endure uh, the forsakenness of God, though he deserves it not. And he does so willingly, and he assents to the will of God, and thus becomes the new Adam in the fullest sense. You get all kinds of flavor for this. Like, for example, in his passion, climactically, um, uh, Pilate says, Hidu ha anthropos, or echi homo, uh, behold the man. And then, and then as you grasp hold of this theology, you can see that it's written all over John's Gospel. So Christ is doing this dual revelation not only revealing to us who God is, but revealing to us who we are. As Christians, now but not yet, who we become as we follow Christ into his death, into our own deaths united with his death, as we follow him into this, then we become ha-anthropos, we become true human beings, the man, along with him. And so this then, we are conformed fully into the image of God, and what God intended all the way back in Genesis is now complete and fulfilled in such a way that it's like, 
ah, the deepest, profoundest mystery and wonder, like, who could have fathomed this? Who could have conceived of it? You know, that'll be one of the most stunning things to us as Christians is the, well, that's what Paul says, that these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. The unveiling. I think it's apocalypsis there too, I'm not sure. The unveiling of the sons of God, the unveiling of the sons of glory. And of course, glory is Christ crucified. So to be sons of glory, we are crucified with him, dying with him that we might live with him, putting an end to this subhumanity that is ours and becoming true human beings. All right, so why that long discourse? Because I don't really feel as though I did justice last week on, the, on this fourfold description of Christ in being ha martis and being the witness. Jesus sets before us a paradigm and a way in which we understand who we are and what we shall be. We are witnesses to the living God, revelators of Christ Jesus, who in turn is a revelator of the Father. We are, um, we are ha pistis in Christ, and we are being conformed into the one who is the faithful one. We are being conformed into him, and to, you know, the proof of faithfulness is, is to be faithful even unto death, to be faithful in the midst of all, all temptation and sorrow. C.S. Lewis has this great, I'm going I'm to kind of butcher it slash paraphrase it, um, that evil people don't actually know all that much about evil because they've never actually tried to resist it. And it's only those who have first tried to be good who really understand how evil they are, who really understand the power of evil. As, as ha pistis, the faithful one, Christ knows that so well. I mean, as he's tempted in every way we are, um, and yet without sin, and as he bests the devil where we so frequently fall to him, nonetheless, in his, vic in his victory, we find a paradigm for our victory, and so we strive to be... To be uh, Hapistus, the faithful one with him. And of course, it turns out inevitably that we're faithless and he is faithful, and in that rests our salvation to be sure. But that doesn't, I mean, thereby in any way demotivate us from, from who we will be in heaven on account of Christ and therefore what we want to begin to be even here on earth. So, um, Ha martis, ha pistis, the witness, the faithful one. These are paradigmatic for us. And then so too the firstborn of the dead. Yeah, this is an incredible thing. So we'll talk about this maybe. Maybe we'll actually do this field trip when we hit Revelation 12 and John introduces us to the woman. Uh, you remember her. She's got the moon under her feet and the 12 stars on her, on her head. In John's gospel, Mary is referred to um, not by name, but as the, as the mother of Jesus. And there are three places. Huh, well, this is the mystery. This is the fun and the artistry of what John has done. There are two places where Jesus refers to the woman. And he's referring quite clearly to Mary. Do you remember the first? 
It's at the wedding of Canaan, you know, and, and um, the water turned into wine. And he calls her the woman, you know, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And then the next time is at the very end when she is at the foot of his cross and he calls her the woman and says, woman, receive your son. So those are the two times. Now there's one other time and it shows up in the middle of Jesus' upper room discourse. And he doesn't refer to her as Mary, but the more you look at this, it's absolutely a reference to Mary. And Jesus is talking about his death as a woman in travail, as a woman who is uh, in having birth pangs. This accords perfectly with Revelation 12, as we're going to see. But John picks a weird word there, which is kind of one, is this, one of his signals that there's more there than meets the eye, like look into this. <laughs> and one of John's signals there is that this woman, while she's giving birth, is sorrowing, which, um, you know, if you're a woman who's given birth, you probably know that that's not exactly the right that's not exactly the right word. I mean, it's no fun, but sorrowing isn't the word. And, and that sort of clues you in to look at this and look at this and look at this more. And the whole context is Jesus is talking about his death, and then he's talking about this woman giving birth. And you suddenly see exactly what is depicted here in Revelation 1.5. He is the firstborn from the dead, which means that he, by, the, by his death, so undoes death that death now becomes its exact opposite. It becomes birth. Now this is such a, just such a profound and beautiful paradigm to think in. So the Holy Spirit comes to us in baptism, and that's the, that's the down deposit. That's the conception. And then this life properly understood is, is a womb. And in dying, in passing forth from this life, in dying, we are born as true human beings. We are born into the image of God, which is also then identical to the image of Christ. So then this, this life, and we use these terms like taking up the cross. Well, you're taking up the cross, why? To follow Jesus into death. I mean, that's the only reason, it's the only it's the only thing a cross is used for. So you're not taking up your cross for any reason other than to follow him into death. And in following in him into death, you find that death is birth. He is the firstborn from the dead. And if firstborn, then there are many others who will be born. And that's us. And so then this entire gestational period of being in the earth, this entire gestational period is a period of being conformed into the image of Christ in a preparatory way, so that when we are born, that is when we die, when we are born, we are born into his image and likeness. So all of this is hidden there in the firstborn of the dead, and in tracking that back to John's earlier theology, Jesus transforming death into birth. Uh, the martyrs have, uh, have wonderful ways of speaking about this. The first and the first and second century martyrs in particular have wonderful ways that 
as they're going to their death, they're, they're seeing it as, as birth and as, as uh, martyrs uh, reject Christ in order to save their lives, um, the church then refers to them as stillborn, stillborn. And then, and then it encourages them because as those, as those martyrs were willing to go forth to their death and be born anew in Christ, that inspires those who had rejected Christ to again confess him. And they go to their deaths and no longer are they uh, stillborn, but they've been received back and birthed into eternal life. So in this sense, the church then becomes the mother of all the living and that is only profoundly realized as her children pass through death. Which is precisely the bizarre nature in which the church is barren. You remember Isaiah 53 at the end? There's this weirdness about the, the barren one having more children. Yeah, I forget the exact language. Having more offspring than the one who has children or something. But that barren one, that's a prophecy of the church. Because the church is, is barren in precisely this, <laughs> this way. I mean, if you looked at her womb, her womb is death. And so, so then she's barren, but she has more children than any other because to be born from death is precisely to become a living human being. Yeah, so the firstborn from the dead, that's a big thing. And I'm really only just scratching the surface. I mean, as I'm sitting here talking to you about it, I'm sorry if I'm distracted. I've got like other verses just flying into my mind left and right about, you know, interconnecting this, this idea. Okay, and then we talked, and I won't belabor this one as long, I promise, because I feel like I did a better job on this one. But um, the archon of the kings on the earth, the thing about, the thing about, it's a strange, it's kind of a strange word. It's not completely out of place, but if it's just Basile, if it's just the king of kings, I, there's a lot more room for that interpretation of, of Jesus as just the king over all the governmental authorities. They all receive his authority from him. After all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and so he's reigning over the world, and he's doing so sort of through them. Um, and I get that. I mean, there's nothing like opposed to Scripture in that. It's just by the choice of the word archon, it's even more clear that, to me at least, that that's not what John's up to. Archon, you can even hear at the root arche. So... It's, um, <laughs> you, you know how Genesis says it, it begins in the beginning? Um, John's gospel begins in the beginning, and the word for beginning is arche. Arche means not only beginning, but source. And it has a little bit of a profundity attached to it, especially in, like there's more here than meets the eye, especially in John's usage. So for archon, with that same root to show up here, this archon is the, is the beginning and the source of the, of the kings on earth. Yeah, let me double check this. He's the archon and the source. Yeah, of the basileon, of the king's taste gaze of the earth. And that, that really then is exactly, exactly fits. Like in Christ... We, you know, as we come into Christ, as we are baptized into Christ, we begin to reign with Christ. He is the source of our, of our kingship, even on the earth, even as, as he, in fact, rules over the earth as the crucified one, the one crowned in thorns, the king of the Jews, the son of David, etc., etc. Um, 
we also reign with him. And I think you can see that already even right here. So that where you see that language of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we'll see it later in Revelation. That's a reference to us. And so too, we can think of this as Christ being the true man. He is the true ruler, the true archon, the true king. He's distinct from us in the way an archon would be distinct from a, a Basileon, you know, the kings. Um, and yet he's, he's one in such a way that what it means to reign we see in Jesus. And we're going to talk about that as we get into the prophecy of Daniel that undergirds the vision of the Son of Man because there's a really profound point to be made that our reigning is not by strength but by the Spirit. Yeah, we'll see that in a minute. Okay, so let's, let's I feel like finally I've, I've done that some justice. Let's move on to the, to the new material because now we have a, a discourse on Jesus that follows in uh, the rest, the remainder of, gosh, my Bible's so scratched up here. I think it's verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So, of course, this is, this is Jesus. Now, what have we seen? We've seen grace to you and peace from him, namely the, the Father and then the spirits and then the Son. And now... Um, we are giving him a response, a doxology in effect. So, so here is a liturgical response. I mean, this is almost like the Lord be with you and also with you fleshed out. Grace to you and peace from Father, Spirit, and Son fleshed out and then to him, namely Christ, and then we're going to see the, the, the doxological response. Even here, even here, there's a liturgical flavor to it. To him who loves us, which also accords with us being the kings, and at least part and parcel of what went before. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I mean, John is huge on the atonement, no doubt about it. That's the blood, period. And we're going to see that in spades, of course, when Jesus appears again here as the Lamb of God. At the very beginning of John's Gospel, of course, John is there saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He says, not once but twice, behold the Lamb of God. And to be the Lamb of God, you are the one who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, that's atonement. And if you trace that back to anything from the Scriptures, you immediately have the theology of atonement. Um, the blood of the Lamb is poured out on the mercy seat, for example, and therefore God overlooks the sins. And that, that blood poured out on the mercy seat once a year points us to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. His blood poured out on the mercy seat once and forever. That's the propitiation set forth by His blood, the, word, the language of hilasterion, the covering of that ark that Paul takes up in Romans 3. So if you like Romans and you like, Luther, and you like Lutheranism because you like Romans, um, then you have to like the atonement because it's just all over Romans. It's all over John 2. Okay, so, so then look at this. He loves us and he has freed us um, from our sins by his blood and, that is, and so, and so made us a kingdom. Now look at that when you compare that to the language of ruler of kings of the earth. Now he has made us a kingdom. Priests. Now we, we of course know that he's the king. We, of course, know that he's the high priest, okay? But even so, he makes us a kingdom, and he makes us priests to his God and Father. So look at this. 
I mean, in the blood of Jesus poured out for our sins, there's like the emphasis is on the divinity um, because it's not the blood of, of one man, it's the blood of the divine man. And then, and then here the emphasis on his humanity, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and, glory and dominion, uh, lordship reigning forever and ever. Which again is, I know we're way ahead of the game here, but when we get to this point of the thousand-year reign of Christ, a verse like this helps us see that that's already going on. That's all, it's not something we're waiting for in the future. Look again. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion. That's lordship. That's reign. Forever and ever. Amen. Oh, I forgot my hymnal this week. Oh, well. There's a beautiful hymn that encapsulates what comes next. Behold, he is coming. Yeah, lo, he comes with clouds of glory. If you want to look it up on YouTube and, and you, can, you can see the verse that's basically just a paraphrase of this. Behold, or lo, <laughs> he is coming with clouds. Okay, we'll get to see that a little in Daniel 7, when we go to Daniel 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. That, of course, is loaded. It's loaded in the superficial sense because that's the way of his ascension. So that's the way of his return. He's enveloped in clouds. And so he returns with clouds or in clouds. Jesus, of course, himself takes up this imagery. And this imagery comes from uh, Daniel 7. Jesus takes up this imagery in describing But to be, wrapped, to be wrapped in the cloud and then to return in clouds, this connection with the clouds actually has to do with the, the Shekinah, the, the glory, the cloud that envelops the temple. Christ being enveloped in the temple as the divine way of saying he is the new temple. Christ returning enveloped in clouds is the way of saying that the temple of God has come down to earth. As we're going to see the climax of Revelation, the dwelling place of God is with man. So this is, a, this is a big deal. I mean, this isn't just telling us the weather on the day of his return. The connection with clouds is uh, definitional for identifying Christ as, as the temple. And of course, as we are one with Christ, then we are one with that temple. And so the Spirit of God indwells us. I mean, there's a complex theology there to be sure, but this, in simplicity, when he comes in clouds, we're seeing him as the temple. Now, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Again, I don't mean to be jumping ahead, but like here's this idea. Look, look biblically, every eye will see him. There is no secret coming of Christ, like where he just sort of slips in and, and raptures a bunch of people. That, that's, that's a completely alien idea uh, to Scripture, period, but particularly to Revelation, which literally from chapter 1 is speaking in ways that just don't fit that. He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, that's a reference to, that's a re reference to Zechariah uh, 12. Um, his bones aren't broken but he is pierced, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Which you can just marvel at, by the way, that 
like that this prophecy is fulfilled. So, so sometimes people will try to discredit what happens to Christ as if, well, he knew the prophecies and so he made sure that they happened to him. And in, and in fact, there's, there's like a modicum of truth to that. He was aware of the prophecies and, and he ensures that, that they happen as such. But one thing that's completely out of his control, and at least sort of from our scientific frame of reference, which is silly, but even so, how on earth does Christ, dead on a cross, see to it that his legs aren't broken, but rather that he's pierced by a spear? You cannot orchestrate that. Jesus is crucified between two thieves on either side, and they come and break the legs of one. And why on earth would that, would that soldier pass by Christ and break the legs of the other? And even so, why would he not come and break the legs of Jesus? He's already got the thing in his hand. I mean, the, the Romans aren't known for their mercy, nor is what he does next particularly merciful. So, so this is beautiful because what John is doing here by citing this, they will look upon him whom they pierced. I mean, I, this is where the layers come in. He's not only with the clouds taking us back to Daniel. Um, he, he's not only with the clouds taking us back to the temple. But then look at this. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. Now, John makes a big deal about this. This shows up only in John's gospel, and then it's all over his epistles as well. This is a profound and deep and expansive theology that John presents here. But in piercing Jesus' side, what comes forth is blood and water. Blood and water. And, and John's going to say in his epistles, blood, water, and spirit, these three testify as one. Now, what we see is that, is that Christ is crucified before the foundation of the world. We don't need that, but it's helpful. And then Adam is actually an icon or an image of Christ. Christ precedes him. The piercing of Christ's side precedes him. So what we see then in Adam is Adam is put into a deep sleep. Do you remember? And God pulls from uh, Adam's side and he takes from his side and he creates the, the woman, who we're told is Eve or Zoe, the mother of all the living, which is ironic, of course, because everyone who is born of Eve dies. Now, what, so what, what is prefigured then or reflected in Adam, depending upon one's perspective, is precisely this. As he's put to sleep and God takes the woman from his side, so our Lord Jesus, the second and greater Adam, the Adam that actually precedes the original Adam, he is put asleep, the sleep of death, and from his side comes water and blood, which is the very essence of the church, his bride. The water of holy baptism, the blood of his New Testament, the blood of his cup. And so the church is constituted the true mother of all the living. For all who are born of the church don't die. In fact, what is, what is death, as we just went through, is actually birth. And so she, the church, gives birth to what is truly human. So then, so then you have this imagery and you also have it wrapped in with the imagery of Christ as the temple. Wrapped in the cloud, the glory of God. And, and, then, and that being in some ways 
iconic of the Spirit of God. And then the temple is pierced and forth from the temple flows blood and water. You can connect this with um, two different feasts in the Old Testament. Remember Jesus saying springs of living water, there's that, there's that business. And then there's, um, there's also where the, lamb, where the lambs are all slain um, at Passover and the, and the blood literally pours out from the temple. Um, Josephus tells us like over 100,000 lambs and the blood runs so thick, it like runs out the temple and down the hill and turns the brook Kidron red. So out of the temple flows blood and out of the temple flows water. And that's exactly what John sees in the piercing of Jesus' side. He has become the temple that has been prophesied uh, from the very beginning. And so we see this too. Again, this is, where, this is where John is just doing layer upon layer upon layer. And like if you just read this and pass over it and don't think on it and just think sort of like, oh, isn't that curious? Well, I wonder why he chose that and move right on. You're going to miss all this. Okay, so then, so, so back to kind of the original layer, and I know I'm running short on time. Um, but he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him. So his return... Um, his return as temple, even those who pierced him. Now we're seeing the temple, but we're also remembering that, that this is the birth of the church and refer, referring back to the firstborn of the dead and, and death being transformed into birth and life. Okay, And um, all the tribes of the earth will wail. Yeah, why? Because they've rejected him. That's the point here. Those who wail have rejected him. And look at the timelessness on it. I mean, because he says, even those, even those who pierced him. I mean, there's, there's timelessness here. Um, all the people. This, like, this is like, I mean, not to put like too fine a point or too dogmatic of a point. We just don't need to. But the, sort, the vision here is that everyone who has ever existed is watching the return of Christ. And of course, that's like that's deeply horrifying and depressing and saddening to, to the, the masses upon masses that have bet their lives against him, that have in effect chosen to exist as subhuman forever, and who have, who have willingly and knowingly done so. So there's, uh, so there's this weeping and wailing on account of him. Ah, and then I don't like the English here. I'm sorry. Even so, amen makes it sound like, well, so there's going to be a bummer, but even so, I guess let's get it on. No, that's... <laughs> In Greek, it's like, yes, exclamation point. Amen, exclamation point. And this is the first taste we get of like, finally, the Lord has returned. Evil will be put away. Let eternity commence. This is what we have been waiting for. This is what we have been enduring for. We have borne countless sufferings. We have looked and looked and cheered and prayed for the coming of the King, the dawning of the temple of God, the new heavens and the new earth, and it is arrived, and all the enemies of God are weeping, and we're not saying, oh, even so, amen. We're saying, yes, amen. Let it be so.
And this comes out in spades, of course, later in Revelation, where um, the saints of God are simply rejoicing at the defeat of Satan and all who have allied themselves with him. Like, there's not any sorrow. It's very, I think C.S. Lewis' apologetic here is very helpful for us when, when we get a little squishy in our sensitivities. I mean, we don't need it because you're either aligned with God or you're aligned with Satan. And the people who are aligned with God are, are your eternal kin, and the people who have aligned with Satan aren't. That's just the bottom line. But, you know, C.S. Lewis kind of does this thing of like, whatever you knew and loved in the people who have chosen to depart from God and go into everlasting separation from God, everlasting separation from the light, eternal darkness, whatever you might have known and loved about them is gone um, the moment they've gone into that. And so, so there you have a window into how it is that you can rejoice even knowing that people are going to go to hell. I mean, again, you don't need C.S. Lewis apologetic, but I think it's helpful for us because we've grown a little, uh, little wishy-washy in our alliances, frankly. And that's one of the things that Revelation would, would purge from us. Like, hey, straighten up. Whose side are you on? Who do you count as, as uh, your family? Or is it the family of God or is it the family of Satan? Um, the brood of the, of the serpent or the brood of Christ and his church? And that's a very strong dividing line. So uh, we, we glimpse that then here too in the profound yes and amen, this uh, jubilant shout um, as th that sort of concludes this opening liturgy, um, this responsory grace to you and peace from God, and then this response, this doxological response to Christ that encapsulates basically everything from his incarnation to his return. Okay, well, we had better stop there because we don't get any less profound. I know that I went um, a very short distance. We, we will go quicker, although maybe not all that much quicker through this first chapter because there's so much here and it's so important um, as we head out into the rest of the book. Thank you for joining us. The Lord be with you. Be also with you. Thanks.